This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the April 2018 edition of Voices of Experience. Donna St. Louis, welcome to VOE. Let's talk about negotiating for speakers. And the first thing we have to negotiate, which a lot of people don't even think about as negotiating, but it totally is, how do we negotiate our way to the actual decision maker? How do, how do we negotiate access? Yes, because everyone always talks about how do they get past the gatekeeper as if the gatekeeper is a problem. Right, the gatekeeper really isn't a problem. The gatekeeper is a person that you want to use, and you want to actually use that gatekeeper to get to the other person. So, whoever that person is, whoever the decision maker is, or the gatekeeper is, here's one tip that absolutely works, and you can do it in email. So, there are a few parts to this email. The first thing is you want to make sure that you've done your homework, don't just try to negotiate into someone by sending out spam email to a thousand people. So batch and blast, copy oh and paste, Oh my gosh, not do not work. do pray and spray. Okay. Spray and pray, doesn't work, don't do that. What you wanna do instead is let's say David Newman, I found out, did an event last year and David Newman was the rock star event planner who killed it. And so now I wanna make sure that I connect with David by saying, hey David, I saw that last year for this event, you were the rock star that made this event happen, congratulations. Okay, little bit of schmoozing, not a lot, don't overdo it. Don't overdo it, it's disgusting. Now you wanna go into the second part where you actually wanna say, I was wondering if you could give me a little bit of advice. This is the gold. This is really good, guys. Notice that I did not say I want you to give me help. I said, I want you to give me advice. I'm asking for advice, why? Because right now you just told this person they were smart, you just put them in a power position, which is good, you have the power, so you just put them in a power position, and now that they're in that power position, they feel almost a little indebted to help you. So you're asking for help without using the word help. Do not use the word help, because it does not evoke emotion, and it, it makes you look like a weakling, but if you ask for advice, it makes you look smart, and it makes them feel smarter. Love that. So you want to make sure that you ask for advice. And the advice is usually how to get into that event, for example, if you're a speaker. I'm looking for advice in regards to how to contact the person who makes decisions in regards to your keynote speakers. Last year I was checking out your event and you had this person on your platform. Showing you've done your homework. Showing you've done your homework, that's important. You've had this person on your platform. I think my program that is this would be a perfect follow-up for your audience of, and make sure you make, make let them know that their audience is smart, of savvy audience members who could use this. Now, why should you help me? And I always like to put that, so why should you help me? I, In my language I go, so why should you hook me up? because that's what Donna would say in real life, right? So you let your personality shine through also. You always should let your personality shine through. It should not look like it's something that, yes, it should be your personality. What would you normally say? And David, you know me, I would say, all right, David, so why are you gonna hook me up? This is why. Number one, because your audience could use one benefit. Number two, because you're going to look like 
a rock star, David, I'm going to make you look like a rock star, like I did for my other client. And you, I always like to put a link to that other client so they can go and look at their LinkedIn profile. And then number three, I always like to put something funny. I'm going to laugh at all your jokes. No, seriously, no matter how bad they are, I will laugh at them. So, so you'll want that, me to be around. The power of three, right? Absolutely. One, two, and then the third one is funny. Something for the audience, something for the decision maker, and then something funny that says a little bit about yourself. And it makes them smile. That's right. And then all you're going to do is put your contact information for them to call you back. That's it. That's it. All you're doing is asking for advice. The problem that people run into is in their email, they're actually trying to close the deal. Oh you do not God. have permission to close the deal. Right. You haven't even Here's connected. Here's my 17 with. videos. Oh my I, God. I've attached 32 PDFs. I'm awesome. Here's my right. 47 testimonials. Too that much. doesn't work? No. On a first contact? No, no. Weird. That's like going into third base on the first date. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> wow. All right. right. Well, let's talk about some savvy negotiating gifts. And I, I've never yeah. heard this term before until I heard you talk about it, but I love this. What's a negotiating gift and how do we negotiate with gifts? Right, so if you've heard of Cialdini and the Psychology of Influence, very famous book. One of the things that he talks about is the law of reciprocity. And in this law of reciprocity, we see it all the time. What do we do at Christmas? Oh, we send boxes of chocolates or some of our crap with our name on it. Like we send all that stuff and it gets buried in all the other gifts that are sent. Well, here's, here's the problem is that people only send these physical things, whether it's even bringing a, a cup of water for the other person is there. We do these physical gifts. However, physical gifts could actually make the person who you're giving them to recoil. I want you to think about it this way. Here I am, I'm a woman, I'm going out on a date with this guy and he shows up in a limo, he takes me out for lobster and steak, he takes me on a cruise around the world and all this other stuff. The whole time I'm thinking is, oh my God, what is he really expecting? This actually happens to your clients when you give them a gift. They sometimes recoil because that is not their language of reciprocity. It's not physical gifts. There are four languages of reciprocity. One of them is gifts. This client will always talk about the stuff that they've gotten from other people or they'll show it off. The second one is importance. People want to be ego stroked a little bit. Not talking to them directly, but by letting other people that you find them important. You could even be telling their boss what a great person they are, even though they haven't actually done business with you. They'll feel compelled to now want to do business with you. Number three is favors. Do a favor for someone and they will want to do a favor back and they will start telling you about things that other people have done for them. And then number four is time. Spend time with people. They'll talk about how time is so valuable. They don't have enough time, that type of thing. They actually want to do something that has nothing to do with work off-site and usually with you. They want to spend quality time. This is usually take them out to lunch. Don't talk about work. Just have a great conversation. The fact that you took time and you gave something to them will make them feel indebted to you. And if you paid a close attention, these actually spelled G-I-F-T. Gifts. Oh, come on. Importance. Favors and time. That's the language of reciprocity you need to speak. So you do need to be reciprocal. You need to be reciprocal in the right way, just by listening to your client. And this is really about relationship building. I mean, Absolutely. This is not, you know, when you say, in, it's not like devious, no, I'm being tricky, I'm being sneaky. You're simply intentionally befriending your prospects and clients. Right, I call it the art of ethical manipulation. There you go, I love that. <laughs> ethical I love is that. the operative word there, ethical. Love it. So now let's talk about we're, we're getting to the person, we're mm -hmm. getting to the person, and we want to deliver on that promise of right. making them look like a rock star. We want to deliver that personal win. And so now, and we are going to talk about negotiating here, of course, mm -hmm. but 
in the process make this person look awesome to their board their ceo their members whoever it might be how do we how do we manage that third leg of the stool exactly so let's talk just super basic when they call and they need a speaker they're like i have an hour slot i need a keynote speaker who actually can speak without drooling on themselves okay great most of us can probably fill in that bill, right? I'm out. Right, <laughs> the drooling thing, that was it, yeah. yeah. So I, th- I saw that before. So really what you wanna get to is recognizing that you have solved their business need. Their business need is to fill a slot. What we miss, however, is fulfilling that personal need. And until you recognize the personal need of the decision maker, that decision maker is not compelled to hire you. And this is where there is a huge separation gap between myself and a lot of my competitors. See, I might have people who are 10 times better than me on this negotiations. They might have all this other stuff, but what they're doing is they're only delivering on the business win. Keynote speaker in a slot for 45 minutes for this rate. But they forgot to ask one critical question. What is your number one frustration with filling in this slot? Notice I said frustration, not challenge, because that's corporate, not issue, because that's organizational. I said frustration, which is personal. People will do anything they can to eradicate their frustrations. So ask the person that you're working with, that decision maker, about their frustrations, whether it's with the speaker, whether it's with the content, whether it's with something they had last year. When you work to eradicate that frustration, this person will want the personal win, and they will justify their decision of even paying you more because they have a business need. Wow. So that is how to get in, build a relationship, and make truly, I mean, a lot of us talk about, oh, or make our clients look like a rock star. This is really how to make them look like a rock star is find out how they want to look like a rock star, what's invested in this for them, not only professionally, not only financially, but personally. Yes. Right? Are they looking to get raised, praised, promoted? Are they looking for that next bump? Are they looking to make some kind of quota or win some kind of contest or who knows what it is that they might want to do? But you are helping them. You're building that bridge to an outcome that they want for themselves. Exactly. And they're fulfilling that by hiring you. And they're using the business need as a justification. That's what people don't understand. They always think that people make decisions based on logic alone. Obviously, we don't because we pay $10,000 extra for the Napa leather in our car, right? So we don't make decisions based on logic alone because Napa leather isn't really a need. Well, that's everyone, business to business or business to consumer. What you really want to understand is the business need is what they use for justification. The personal need, that emotional need, that's what they do to make the decision. Alan Stevens, CSP, CSP Global, all the all the letters. Thank you. All the letters. <laughs> Thank Welcome. you very much, David. Welcome to VOE. Some more letters. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure. So speakers, we are really dedicated to doing a great job. And sometimes we do a great job, sometimes we don't. But even when we do a great job, we can sometimes have a problem with our reputation. That's right. Unhappy client, mis- misunderstood communication. We're going to piss some people off. This is an area of my expertise. (laughs) Mine too, funnily enough. When this happens, what should the couple first things that we're thinking about, the couple of first things that we're doing when you start to hear that sound of things going off the rails as far as your reputation? Well, two things, David. I mean, the first thing is to take a deep breath. 
Uh, it may not be as bad as it appears. And sometimes we look at something, we see a tweet, we see a Facebook post, and we think our career is in ruins. That may not be the case. So the first thing to do is take a deep breath, think, what is the impact of this? And do I need to respond? Because there can be occasions when responding can actually make it worse. It's like pouring petrol on a fire. You might just think, I'll let it pass, it'll go. It's ephemeral, like the morning mist, it will have disappeared and nothing will have ensued as a result. So first they do, take a breath. Second thing is, is it true? If it's true that you've done something that you shouldn't have done, you may need to apologize for that, then you need to deal with it. If it's untrue, you deal with it in a different way. You need to go back and say, that is incorrect, you need to withdraw that, you need to delete it, or overcome it in some other way. So talk to me a little bit about, because this is brilliant, about the responding versus not responding. There's also another layer to this, which is responding in public versus yes. responding in private. Absolutely How do we handle so. that decision? The, the default should be private. You should go back initially. If, certainly if something has been said which is untrue, you should go back initially to the originator of that comment. And you should point out to them that they may have made a mistake. They may have thought you did something that you didn't do or, or vice versa. And you should go back and say, you, you need to retract that. That's, that's incorrect. That, that's wrong. And that, that can eliminate the problem without it ever becoming public. Once you go public on something, you've got to be aware that that is permanent. That stays on social media and that can affect your reputation in any number of ways forever. So I would say that only in very, very serious situations should you go back. And certainly you should never start complaining about somebody in public. Because funnily enough, all of our clients read social media. They're on Facebook, they're on LinkedIn, they look at Twitter, they know what we say and they will search us. You know, prospective clients will search us as speakers, they know what we do. And if you've said something bad about somebody, they're not gonna do the investigation. They're just gonna look at that comment and say, I'm not sure I wanna work with this person. Absolutely. Also, I know when you talk to large corporations with this crisis communication message, there's a difference between damage control and damage repair. That's right. And when do you pivot and how do you pivot mm. to make that happen? Well, everything you deal with is on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, I've dealt with some you know, extraordinarily difficult cases that are still rumbling on five years later and others that can be resolved very quickly. So I come back to what I said earlier on. You need to think very carefully, what is the impact of this? You really need to do an assessment. You need to do that quickly because these sorts of things can, <clears throat> excuse me, can spread very rapidly indeed. And if you don't know what the impact is, just get in there and deal with it quickly. So everything is a separate case. There are no general rules for how you deal with crises. Every crisis is unique. So I'm gonna ask you another general question to which you just said, there are no general answers. However, is it sometimes advisable, especially in our type of business, we're a consultant, we're a coach, we're a speaker, we're a facilitator, when things blow up like this very rapidly, very surprising, almost like we're blindsided, is it ever advisable to apologize even if you know that you're not at fault, even if you know that this is something that was completely misunderstood or taken the wrong way, sort of apologize proactively? Well, that's a very interesting point, David. I mean, some people say, you know, we should never try and offend people, but no one ever really tries to give offense, or very few of us try to give offense. People take offense. And that may not be our fault, but it might be appropriate, as you say, to apologise for that. I'm sorry if you felt offended by that. It was not my intention. 
uh, what I intended to say was this. So that, that may be an appropriate circumstance. However, I would caution against ever apologising for things that aren't your fault and were nothing to do with you, because that starts to look as though you're making mistakes and continually apologising for them. And that's not a situation we want to be in. No, absolutely right. So what are some differences between the work that you do with these large global mm-hmm. corporations versus some advice that you might give us? Are, are there strategies that are available to us as small or solo business owners that you would not advise a large corporation to do? And then vice versa, what should, should we, we be doing that a large company wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole? Yeah, well, it's, it's to, do with, to do with the size of your reputation, the impact on your reputation. I mean, the fact is, if we've made a mistake with a client, and that never becomes public. That's not a huge issue for our business. It means perhaps we won't do business with them again, but it doesn't affect anything else in our business. Whereas a large corporation, a large hotel, a a multinational company, they can do one small thing and you know, what's a great example? United Breaks Guitars, for example. And that became a viral video, it went out there, it was a single incident caused by a couple of baggage handlers, but it did a huge amount of damage to a corporation. So corporations need to look at single incidents which can become public, can blow up, and deal with them. Whereas as individuals, we can often deal with them outside the glare of publicity. So tell me a little bit about you know, most of our colleagues have a book of some kind. Hmm. Tell me a little bit about opinion sites like Amazon reviews, Yelp reviews, Google reviews, where it's not even factual. It's just, I didn't like Alan's sport coat. Uh, <laughs> he came in, he had this weird accent. He might be from Alabama. I don't know. These opinion sites, you can't really argue with someone's opinion, but that can be very damaging to us it, as well. It can. You're absolutely right. And so certain opinion sites, you, you, you can get the opinions dealt with. If they're factually incorrect, then generally an opinion site, an Amazon, a TripAdvisor, will take that review down. It's not an easy process quite often. You've got to go through a number of hoops, but you can get those taken down. Much better is to have lots of good reviews. If you've got lots of good reviews, then anything bad will trickle down. And the interesting thing is, if people only see positive reviews, they only see five-star reviews delivered the day after publication, they will tend to be a little sceptical. So the odd bad review in there doesn't do that much harm. So a little ding now and again just adds to your credibility. it, It makes you look human. Right. Yes. All right, Alan, that's a fantastic toolkit for how to handle, manage, proactively repair our reputation. Closing thoughts, words words of advice, do's and don'ts, what should we be on the lookout for, what should we have in our toolkit? I think the most important thing, David, is to make sure you monitor your reputation. Make sure you know what people are saying and thinking about you. We, We often laugh about vanity searches when we put our name into Google. It's important to know what people are saying, to know what can affect your business. Second thing is, don't rush to try and fix something that will just disappear. If it does need fixing, though, act quickly, act factually, be honest, come out with your hands up and apologise, and it will. you'll find that it will all blow over. So just be careful, be sensible, and take things calmly and gently. Well, Alan, thank you, and, and I'm sorry. <laughs> it's quite all right. All right, we're in the hallway. Anastasia Tercetta's here. Let's go. All right, best piece of advice I can give you when you were talking TV, you can edit this, is use your <laughs> use the power of your reach. That has been the biggest thing for me because a lot of people too will ask about databases, which are important. However, when you're using social media and for the power of YouTube, the power of your reach is important because that means 
not only one, do you add value to your client because you can get into groups, you can access other places that they cannot access, but it also adds validity to where you go. So you, your reach itself expands into other areas. Even if it's like, so say I'm dentistry, I can still expand into the parenting magazine. I can expand into health magazines, fitness magazines, wherever that goes. The second tip I would give you is the fact that using video blogs, create your brand and make sure that your name is in it so other companies and everybody else will recognize you. And then when they recognize it and see it, they are there to hire you and then they'll also use that and push you forward into other avenues. Wow, dude. Wow. Heck yeah! El Presidente. <laughs> Welcome back to VOE. You and I had the pleasure of doing the circus about five years ago. Yes, indeed. And we are doing the host with the most. So the host, a.k.a. Brian Walter, CSP, CPAE, uh, your favorite, most impactful interview. What was it? May 2012, the interview with the incomparable Connie Podesta. CSP, CPAE. Exactly. What was cool about the interview? Tell us what's coming up. What should we be listening for? Tee it up for us. All right. At NSA, we always want to provide programming at the highest level. We say that. Hard to do. And so when we go to areas like sales and marketing, we oftentimes get mid-level things. But then there's that flash of brilliance that comes through. In this segment, Connie shares a sales technique that she does. Uh, she calls it, basically, she starts giving her speech before she ever gets there. But what it really is, David, is one of the most sophisticated sales techniques, interpersonal selling techniques, that I have ever heard. So she, she weaves the story that she wants to tell about that client company into the sales conversation, even the very first phone call. Exactly. She's uh, talking with the decision makers, and this technique, which you'll see her masterfully unfold to you, is basically taking that client's service and showing how it was a crucial part of her life or at a seminal moment or a big memory. And when she's done with that story, you can just imagine the client going, oh my gosh, she knows us. Oh, it's like, and then oftentimes I would imagine they say to her, you're gonna tell that story in your speech, are you? Well, of course she was planning on telling that story in her speech, but by her laying it out there is almost like it's this afterthought. And she delivers it in a such a way that, uh, oh, oh, well, yeah, you know, it reminds me. And you think, oh, this just organically, naturally came to pass. No, no, this was craft. This was craft. And when I heard this, I thought, I want to get me some of that. And I want to use that technique in my business because it is so sophisticated, but more importantly, it's so effective. Let's listen in. All right, here we are talking with Connie Podesta, CSPCPAE, and today we're going to be talking about growing our biz or just really doing what we need to do to have a business uh, here. As you may or may not know, uh, Connie is an organizational therapist. Basically, she does with companies what other therapists would do with a family for rather slightly higher compensation. <laughs> Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, Connie, I know that speakers all the time have gone, Connie, Connie, can you help me understand why my business is sucking so badly? Right, right. 
you know, when I'm when I'm coaching a speaker, I always say to them, give me the first line of your presentation. And they always, you know, tell me what they say on stage. You know, mm-hmm. they walk on stage and I always say, but is that where your presentation starts? Well, what do you mean? And I said, for me, the presentation starts way, way earlier than the moment I walk on stage. That's the end of my presentation. The presentation for me starts the moment I'm on the phone with either the meeting planner or the person that's ready to hire me. That's where the presentation begins. This is the aha moment where they're going, ooh. Oh, good. I hope so. I hope so. Because I think there's three key components to a good speaking. You have to be an extraordinarily good business person. Mm-hmm. You have to be an extraordinarily good speaker. But the third, which I rank highest, is you have to be an extraordinarily good salesperson. But did you hear that? There was like there was a collective groan. Yeah, I know. <sighs> and I say to the people that come to me for coaching, if you groan at sales and you can't do it, don't want to do it, I don't know that you will ever be amazing on stage. See, deep down, I think all speakers, they don't necessarily say this, but deep Mm -hmm. down they're like, can I just get someone to sell me so all I can do is focus on what I do best, which is to be on the platform. And you're saying BS. I'm the one who sells me. And I honestly believe that speakers who avoid sales say they're not good at sales, they don't want to do sales, they want to hire someone else, they're they're missing a huge, huge piece of their potential. And and I'll tell you why, because I see that as part of the presentation. And I'll give you an example. A couple years ago, McDonald's called. And, oh my goodness, I'd love to work with McDonald's. And what, what Teresa does is she'll always say, I think Connie has the date open. She always says that, because I always want some leeway as to looking at the date. Is it a client I want? Um, she gets the budget from them, and then she says, I'll have her call you back. So that's what she does. I'm I'm the salesperson. And so I think about it a lot because this is the beginning of my presentation. I, I need to start customizing for McDonald's the moment I talk to them on the phone. So I go online, I look about them, I think about it. But what I'm really looking for is that connection between me and McDonald's. If I can't find a personal connection on the phone with the event planner, then I'm not going to be able to find it on the stage. So now is where I begin to write the speech. And so I called that late afternoon. Mm -hmm. I tried to call back, but I don't call right back because I need a lot of time to think about. This is Mm -hmm. like the first date. This is the interview. This is the most important beginning of my presentation. And so when we called back, I listened. I took some notes. And then I said to her, you know, I I really want to tell you how much it would mean to me to speak to McDonald's. And I want to tell you why. In 1958, the very first McDonald's opened up in the south side of Chicago. And that's where we lived. My dad was a traveling salesman and he used to stop and bring this white bag and hamburgers were 15 cents and french fries were a dime and it was just amazing and I said and then when I went to high school we'd all go to McDonald's that was our hangout place there was no place like that and we would go and sit out in fact the first boy that asked me to go steady asked me right in the parking lot of the McDonald's on Washington Avenue and I said, then when my kids were growing up, that's when you started drive-in through, drive-throughs. And I remember when you had your first green, you know, shake on on St. Patrick's Day. And I drove the girls through in their pajamas, and they've never forgotten that. And then I told a couple other stories, and I ended with, and even now, when I drive to the airport, and I says, and I'm so glad you have vanilla lattes because you've blown Starbucks out of the water. I drive through McDonald's still today at like 6 a.m. before I catch that seven o'clock flight, and I said, do you understand that your company has been with me? for 50 years. This is the part that they said, we want a date now. And they said, (laughs) we want you, we want you. That's 
a presentation. And that's what I don't get when speakers say, well, I have someone that does my sales. I go, but who could have told that story? I mean, I... I'm the one that's going to have to be on stage and connect with this company, this product. There's going to be have to be some connection there where they know that for me, what they do is so amazing, so valuable, so... And, and so I think speakers miss it. You know, they have someone else outsourced. They've delegated their sales. They've delegated this. They've delegated that. And they want to just be able to get on a plane and get on stage. But to me, that's the connection. And plus, I've already written part. She's got to hear me talk. Sure. She knows how I'm going to sound on stage. It's like a little mini demo you know and i have a demo tape but it's generic it's i can't put the mcdonald's store on a demo tape you know walmart calls and and i'm sitting there thinking okay what can i say in this call to walmart and then all of a sudden it hits me and so i call him back and i said you know i can't tell you how much i want to speak i said my dad thought your store was the greatest store in the world and i said i would give him shirts and ties for christmas but all he wanted from me every christmas was i was the one that gave him a hundred dollar walmart gift card and i said and after he died we're going through his clothes and i find in one of his jackets this walmart gift card so i take it to walmart and there's eighteen dollars left on it so i'm standing there thinking you know what do i do with eighteen dollars and this was seven years ago mm-hmm. so i went and picked up my pictures because that's what you did seven years ago and there was a picture of my dad and i about two weeks before he died and so i just went over and bought an eighteen dollar frame from walmart and i said the picture of my dad and i is in your frame and it's right here right here next to my computer I see it every day and I said you were his store of choice sales is it is who a speaker is I don't know how you separate that and if I can't figure out some way to connect to them at such a deeper level not the seven keys and the six steps and here's my powerpoint and i take my jacket off when i reach the seventh sentence and i change my mic to my right hand all the coaching if if there isn't if they don't believe at some point that you so understand them and what they do and what they're fearful of and what they're frightened of and how important they are, um, then I don't think you should be in this business. And I don't understand how people delegate sales. My client has a right to know me and who I am from the moment the relationship starts. So, Brian, you're right. That was amazing. Final thoughts, any other takeaways from that brilliant segment? Well, I like the fact that she shared two examples because the first one, like, you know, the McDonald's thing, you think, well, that just really happened to her life. And that was just an amazing coincidence that she was able to use that. But in the second example, you can say, okay, she can adapt that and you can use it for multiple clients. And so in my own uh, business, I remember doing an event for Verizon. Well, I'm a Verizon subscriber. Yeah, I burned through several other ones before I got there, but but still, I was a Verizon su- subscriber. And then during the sales process, I popped out with, you know, I totally remember going into the Issaquah branch, and the store manager's name was, you know, Bob Schmedlap or whatever his name, his name was. And then I tell this story, and they're like, you're going to tell this in front of our whole regional meeting, right? And I say, yeah, will the Issaquah store be there? Oh, yeah. I said, well, then I'll do a shout-out thing. So... I was like a mini me of Connie. And I was gonna say, you know, publicly here that she helped me get thousands of dollars, but in case she wanted part of that as like a referral fee for that technique, I wouldn't want to actually say it. It never happened. It didn't happen. 
Avish Parashar, people need to turn this off right now, don't they? Uh, they do. They should absolutely not listen. And if they do, they should absolutely not follow the advice. Okay. So, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about getting advice, hearing advice, when to listen, when not to. And again, just please pop out the CD, stop the MP3, <laughs> turn off the app. You don't need to hear this. Avish. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, like many people, I've been, been, when I started coming to NSA, I got a lot of advice, a lot of great advice. Um, and my business really started to take off when I started ignoring most of it. So let's. <laughs> there you go. So did I mention you should turn this off you know, just about now? You'll make more money by not listening to this interview. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about this. What filters have you found now that were not in place back then, where all this advice was coming at you fast and furious? You took it all, you got distracted, you got mm -hmm. derailed. So tell us about the good, the bad, and the ugly of that, and then let's fast forward to today with how we're filtering that advice that we're getting, both from NSA and from other sources, business books, other advice, other gurus. So talk us through the ugly. Yeah, absolutely. So I, there's a lot of conventional wisdom that I tried to follow because when I started out, I figured you have to do th things the way people want you to. So uh, I got one of the things I heard multiple times when I first started attending meetings was, well, no one makes it just as a keynote speaker. You can't be just a keynote speaker. And I got into the industry to be a keynote speaker. So for years, I started trying to diversify with training, consulting, coaching, many of those things which I hate, but I thought I had to. Uh, I heard you have to have a niche, um, otherwise you can't make it. And that messed me up for a long time. And like, I and I'm not saying that the advice in of, in and of itself is wrong. I just discovered it's wrong for me. One of my favorite bits of advice, actually, it wasn't really advice, but it was a comment you made, David, is that we were standing around talking, and you said, you know, the moment I realized that it's not about me, it's about the audience, is when my business took off. And I said, hmm, the moment I realized it is about me and not about the audience is the moment my business took off because my background is a performer and my keynotes are very performancy. And for a long time, because of this concept of think about the audience first, audience first, I was removing so many great performance elements because I was so focused on the content. And when I started saying, what do I want to do and what's going to showcase my performance, that's when I started to get booked, referred, word of mouth, everything started to grow from that point. So now I run everything through the filter of how does this fit into my business? Will it fit into my business? And anytime anyone gives advice, they won't say this, but you should always mentally add the words for me. So when someone says you must niche, what they're really saying is you must niche for me. Like that's what worked for them. It's all well-meaning. And I think the advice that I ignored works for about 80% of NSA speakers. I just had to figure out what to ignore and what to apply. And so it's the old 80-20 rule. It right? is. It is. So 20% so of the advice that you get will work for you, 80% will not. I believe so. I mean, I think some people will, 80% may work for them, but I think really you kind of find those keys and ignore the rest. I think only 10% of <laughs> any of this nonsense works for any of us, but, that, but that's okay. But it all sounds so good. It does <laughs> sound really, really good. Well, and this is like, let's talk about the buffet metaphor, yeah. right? So if you were at a beautiful, big, long buffet, you have 10 appetizers, 10 main courses, 10 side dishes, and 10 desserts, you wonder why you're starting to feel really, really sick and why mm -hmm. you're not, you're starting to feel not well all of a sudden, as opposed to choosing more carefully and really picking just what you're hungry for right then, right there at the moment and not putting too much on your plate. Yeah, or, or to extend your buffet metaphor, I would say it's almost like you go to a buffet, but rather than picking and choosing the things that are gonna work for you, 
you have a friend who tells you, you have to have this, you have to have this, you have to have this, and it's not necessarily stuff you like, but because your friend is saying, this is what you have to try, you end up having a horrible meal. So let's talk about your your sort of lessons learned yeah. along the way because I know you've done a ton of content marketing. I yeah. know you used to do you know blogging and teleseminars and online and webinars and you had some partnerships with various people, various projects. You've written a ton of books. Walk us through if you could tell little Avish, young Avish, yeah. five years ago, ten years ago, even maybe three years ago, seven years ago, what have you. What advice or what strategies have you tried and then set aside, and what strategies are you using today that you wish you had embraced sooner? Sure. So you mentioned content marketing. Uh, my business got better when I stopped worrying about content marketing. I stopped blogging. Uh, I, I sent a periodic e-zine, but I didn't really care. And I was doing a daily blog for a while, uh, for about two and a half years longer than I should have because it wasn't generating anything. And content marketing is great, but again, with my performance type keynote, no one was gonna hire me because they read an interesting blog post about, about creativity. They were gonna hire me because I created an experience. So content marketing was a big piece of what I dropped. Uh, I dropped a lot of the attempts at passive income. You know, I think one of the most dangerous forms of advice we get, I think the worst question, and you may have asked this on many interviews, so <laughs> forgive me, is when you take an experienced speaker and say, what would you have done differently, right? And that's kind of what you're asking this question. And the problem with that question is people answer it with the forgetting where they were 20 years ago when they started. So I have heard so many times people say, I wish I had written a book earlier. And so you get all these speakers out there who haven't spoken yet and they're just waiting to get their book done. You know, and yes, looking back, if you had product earlier, it would help, but there's so much foundational stuff that I think everything gets mixed up. So the content I put aside, I stopped worrying about info products, online marketing, SEO, and so that's what I stopped doing. And what I started doing is, again, something that, uh, quote unquote, doesn't work, uh, direct cold email. I just figured, you know what, I just need to get in front of the right people to see my website and video, so I just got some lists and I did some research and um, I just started emailing people who I thought could hire me and that led to to business and I also well, the, well you didn't turn that off immediately that's never going to work you have to yeah. totally turn that oh, off oh yeah yeah you're saying a, that's making you money that's bringing in business yeah. no that's totally wrong yeah, you know you cold marketing doesn't work no, email, no. no one reads their emails anymore right it's all social media now no cold email still works uh, it's worked for me and the other thing I did and this is a hard truth it was a hard pill for me to swallow um, but it was a quote I heard from Larry Wingett about 12 years ago, and it took me about eight to actually start applying it. He said, um, if your calendar is not as full as you want it to be, it's because you are not as good as you need to be. And I was going to all the NSA marketing sessions, content, this, that, thinking all I needed to do was find that magic marketing mix. And it wasn't until I said, you know what, you gotta up your game. And I threw away my keynote, rewrote it, um, and those two things kind of happened simultaneously. And so the cold marketing started leading some initial gigs. The improved performance started leading to the referrals and business grew from that point. Yeah, no, I think that's a one-two punch for sure, right? People say, oh, the best marketing is a great speech. I don't think that's completely true because to get the first speech, yeah. you have to have the great marketing. To get the second speech, and we'll talk about this later, we're gonna bring you back for another segment, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you have to have a killer program. You have to have a killer program. So, let's. Talk, I wanna go back to something that you said because I think many of our colleagues listening to this need to hear this from a guy like you. You got really clear 
on why you get hired. I think some of our colleagues get hired because of the expertise that you leave the audience with Mm -hmm. after you're gone. And some of our colleagues get hired because of the experience that you deliver while they're in the room. Yes. And if you get confused, oh, I have to have a lot of content, but it also has to be funny and engaging and interactive. It's, you know, okay, very few people can play well in both those categories. So either you are a, I'm going to deliver an awesome experience while they're in the room. It's going to be funny. It's going to be entertaining. It's going to be magic. It's going to be... literally magic, literally comedy, literally music, literally whatever, Mm -hmm. right? It's going to be an experience of some kind that they will never forget. Or you're really masterful at the content, the takeaways, Mm -hmm. the tools, the tips, the tactics, the scripts. Very few people can play both of those games at the highest level in one program. Yeah, and in fact, I would say, just to kind of piggyback on that, you do need both, right? Otherwise, you're either incredibly boring or fluffy. Um, But... Um, not only can no one play both those, or very few can do both at a high level, if you try to market on both, it confuses the planner or the buyer, right? Because someone who wants an experiential, if they see you as a, if they get the perception that you're a heavy content guy, might not want you. And vice versa, if someone really wants a heavy content person, if they see all this comedy stuff, it, it confuses the mind, even if you do both really well. There you go. So it's even the perception that you do both will cost you business because you won't get hired because now you have confused buyers going, well, he's not really our guy because right. we, we want a content guy and he has all this funny stuff or he has all this funny, amazing experiential stuff. So the content really can't be all that good. Yeah, people really like my content, but I know they're hiring me. I mean, the com- most common comment I get afterwards is, you know, wow, that was so funny and entertaining but with relevant content too. So it's like that's the bonus, but I know I'm being hired for the, you know, opening or closing keynote slot to create that experience. And again, ignore this advice because if you're a speaker out there that has found a way to market on both at a high level, keep going with it. But I found for me personally, when I really picked one and said this is why people are hiring me, everything else got easier. So what else? What else should we not be listening to? And again, not even about well, this. I'll, I'll give you a technique, not a technique, but a, a mindset shift, right? When you're hearing advice, because obviously there's great advice, so how do you kind of sift it? And I think what happens now is people are either going to reject immediately, like, oh, no, 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 that doesn't work for me, or they're going to implement right away, right? It's like you either reject now or you implement for like three, six, nine, 12 months. Like, that sounds good. Let me go do that. I think we got to reverse that. I think we need to be totally open to thinking positively about all this advice we're hearing now, but selective about what we choose to implement, right? Like when I start out in this business, I would either have this visceral, no, no, that's not for me, or someone come in and say, you have to do this. I'm like, okay, let me go do that. And I do it for like six months. You can save a lot of time and energy because it costs nothing except a little bit of time to let your mind really think through the possibilities. So if you came to me, and I've had so many people tell me, Avish, you should do consulting. I think you could really make a lot of money. You'd be great doing consulting. And my response is always a visceral no, I hate that. But what I can and should do and trying now to do is when someone recommends that, really let it play out in my mind. You know, have that in improv, it's called yes and. So instead of yes, butting that idea, you say yes and, let me think this through. Now that takes me, what, 10 minutes, an hour, maybe a week if I really want to explore. And at the end of that week, I'll have a more informed, rational, objective decision, whether to implement or not, as opposed to objecting out of hand. Then, you know, I can pick, if I want to do it, then I can implement. So I'd say, Right now, people are very selective in what they listen to, but very like gung-ho about what they implement. I say reverse that to be more critical and save time. I love that. So in the uh, leadership and management world, we say 
slow to hire, mm-hmm. fast to fire. What I'm hearing you say is slower to decide, slow down on that decision-making yeah. process, and then once you've made the decision, yes or no, speed up the implementation. Correct. And really think through where is that, if you're rejecting advice out of hand, think about why you're rejecting it out of hand. Is it fear? Is it fear of change? Or is it because you logically really think it doesn't fit your model and where you want your business to go? Because there are some things that I procrastinate or just don't want to do, but really that would probably help my current business model. It's just, it's hard, it's different, I don't know if it's going to work. So understand why you're rejecting something will help you be more critical about which advice you choose to take and, and reject. Hard and different sounds like my early dating life. <laughs> yeah, mine sounds like my current. Well, I'm married now. <laughs> Don't listen to that, my wife. <laughs> yeah, please, stop the CD, pull out the MP3. I'm really glad no one listened to this interview. Yeah, that was a smart move. This is Tony Harris-Taylor. This is Russ Riddle. I'm Sharon Weinstein, and you're listening to Voices of Experience. Hi, Brian Walter here, National Speakers Association President for 2017-2018 with NSA's official referral czar, Bill Cates, CSP CPA. Bill, I I know a, a crucial thing that all of us who are members, who are professional members, who've been in the business, we know that we meet other professionals. Mm-hmm. And we want to have the ability to do a great job of referring NSA because pros like working with pros. Pros like hanging with pros. So let's say here's a scenario. Mm-hmm. I'm at a sales conference. I'm the MC. I'm doing my humor thing. And afterwards, uh, I make a connection with this woman who was a great uh, how to close in three easy steps speaker. Mm-hmm. And we start talking and I mentioned that I spent a lot of time with the National Speakers Association. I said, are you familiar with it? And she goes, well, a little bit. I've, I've heard of it. But uh, what's, what's the deal with that? Kind of show us how, how can we have a great referral situation where that's about where it is. Like, I've heard of it. What's the deal with that? Right. So when someone says, I've heard of it, my first response will be, so what have you heard? Because we know that some people erroneously believe that NSA is just for beginning speakers. And the truth is we serve uh, speakers at all levels and and Mm -hmm. points of their career. So what I'm trying to do here, Brian, is before I talk too much about NSA, I want to learn a little bit of who I'm talking to. So I want to ask that. What have they heard? And then I want to say, all right, so tell me what's working for you, right? Everybody likes to say what's working for them. They're killing it. I go, well, tell me more about what killing it means for you. And then I want to say, what's your biggest challenge? What's your biggest frustration? I want to find out what that is. And so that when I do talk about NSA, I can do it in a way that's totally relevant for them and it makes sense, rather than just say, oh, you should join, it's a great thing, that I go here, then they won't do anything. The next two things I do is I say, look, let me make sure I get your email address, I'm gonna reach out to you, let's have a conversation, let's see if it makes sense, if it's worth considering. And so I'm always available to be an ambassador for NSA and I'll have email conversations, occasionally phone conversations. And I brought a number of members in over the years at all different levels through doing that. And then I give them the, the, the uh, website joinnsa.com, joinnsa.com. Let me, let me jump in here because that, yeah. that's the new piece because yes. the first part you said, I think we've all had conversations like that. Like you tell me about your biz, we start talking, 
but then we've never quite had that next follow-on piece, mm-hmm. and we're out. Right. You know, but now you're saying it's not out now. Now we say go to, was it jointnsa.com? Jointnsa.com, and when I started working with NSA, because this is what I do, this referral thing, this is my life, and uh, I realized that the homepage was not the right place to receive people who were interested. So true. It wasn't built for them. So we needed to build a section that was just for people who were referred to NSA, and so it recognizes the fact that people who arrived there were referred to them. Uh, referred to NSA, and then it splits us up in, into the different people that will be coming there. You have the newer speakers, you have the professional speakers, and you have the, the vendors, suppliers to the industry. So they'll click there, and then they'll get a message that's most relevant for them. And so I want NSA members to know that if you send someone to join NSA, they are going to get the right message for them so they can truly determine, is NSA right for them? All right, so there's the call to action there. So we have those conversations like we're normally having, but then we have a follow-up piece. We have a call to action. We can say, hey, go to joinnsa.com, and we can be confident that there is a message catered to them, whether they're a super pro speaker, they're a vendor, or they're an emerging speaker. Absolutely, and whenever you give a referral, this is just in general, and particularly NSA, always follow up. Just make sure they did it. Make sure, see if they have any questions, and then we stand a chance of really impacting their life and then improving NSA at the same time. Excellent, because when we do, we'll have a bigger NSA, and a bigger NSA is a better NSA. That's right. Phil Van Hooser, CSP, CPAE, welcome. It is fabulous to have you back here in the VOE studios. Thanks, David. It's great to be back here. So we are talking today about a pivotal story in your career, and one that may be not pivotal to you, but it certainly was pivotal to me when I heard you tell it. And this was a number of years ago. You came to visit our chapter, and it was just a casual lunchtime conversation about a favorite client of yours that you had gone back to a number of years in a row. And then this one particular time, you made contact and the conversation went in a very different direction. So please tee that up for us and tell us what happened. First of all, I'm flattered that you would even remember that story, but it was an important story for me. The way it all turned out, like so many of us, we have clients that come and go, but then we have clients that come and stay. This happened to be a client that had come and stayed. It was a lumber company. It was down in a fairly large lumber company down in the state of Alabama. I won't identify which one specifically. But I had uh, spoke for them for two straight years at their annual event. It had gone marvelously, and they had just said, we want to keep using you. So the time was approaching in the period of the year where we needed to check in with them. We hadn't heard from them. And I'm coming back from the airport. I remember exceptionally well, my wife called me and said, Phil, I just wanted you to know that I spoke with Greg, the CEO today, and they're not gonna use you this year. A little bit of a surprise, and I was disappointed, and I asked her why, and she said, he wanted you to know, and he wanted to emphasize that it had nothing to do with you, but be due to the economy and a fall off, a significant fall off in their business. They were having to take drastic steps to, to cut expenses, and unfortunately, a speaker at their annual event had to be one of those things that was cut. And then she said again, he wanted you to know how disappointed he and the team would be, and he asked me to convey that to you. Well, selfishly, I was disappointed. I wanted to go back. We hung up the phone. I was continuing to drive, and I got to thinking about Greg, and I got to thinking about the relationship, and I got to thinking about the challenges that all of us, not just he and his business, but me and my business on occasion faced. 
and kind of spontaneously, I just picked up the telephone and called him. And uh, Greg answered the phone. I said, hey, Greg, it's Phil. He said, Phil, I just talked to your wife a little while ago. And I go, yeah, I know. She called me and told me that unfortunately it's not going to work out this year. And he goes, that's right. And he immediately became apologetic. Phil, I'm so sorry. It has nothing to do with you and so on and so forth. Uh, Just it's the economics of the thing. And I said, Greg, I understand. No hard feelings, even though I am disappointed. But I do have one question I want to ask you. He said, what's that? I said, if money was not an issue, would you have had me come down this year? Was this an important time to hear my message? He goes, Phil, no question. If there ever was a time, this time is as important if ever to hear your message. I said, then I'm coming. And there was this long pause. He said, what do you mean you're coming? I said, well, Susan said the date's available and we can work it out. So you said you'd like to have me and it's important and I'm coming. He said, Phil, I'm not quite sure you understand. I told you I can't pay you. We don't have the resources. I said, this has nothing to do with paying. I said, you paid me when you could. You had me in, and I appreciated it. Now you need me and can't afford me. I would be very hypocritical if I only came when it was advantageous to me without consideration for you. And there was this long pause, and he said, you're serious. And I said, I'm very serious. I said, unless you just tell me not to come, I would love to come. He said, we want you to come. And so, a few weeks later, I went and we did the presentation. It was a very different presentation than the previous two that I had done because of their economic situation. But I got to say that for me, it was exceptionally rewarding, but it was also rewarding in a way that I had not anticipated. When we finished the presentation that night, Greg came to me and he could not have been more gracious. Phil, thank you so much. Phil, it's great having you here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he said to me, so what can I do for you? I said, well, that Phil, uh, Greg, you don't you remember this is this was the deal. I was just going to come for you. And he said, no, 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 we want to do something for you. What can we do for you? And I said, I can't even think of anything. He said, please, something. What, what could we in our business do for you? And honestly, David, jokingly, I said, well, you know what? My wife has always wanted a cut glass front door. And he stopped and he said, seriously? And I went, well, kind of. He said, Phil, we make cut glass front doors. He said, well, let us give you a gift of a cut glass front door. He said, I want you to go home and I want you to measure your door. In fact, get a professional uh, contractor or a professional carpenter to measure it. Send me the measurements and we'll send you the door and and the side lights. Let me tell you what happened next, David. We did that. It was hard to believe he would be willing to do that, but he did that. But more so, he himself, the CEO, drove from Alabama to our home in Kentucky and delivered those doors several weeks later. We've never, our relationship went to a whole different level. I think because he realized I was willing to give to them something that they needed and that I had available. And he in turn was able to do the same thing to me. It was a special occasion for me. Apparently it was special for you because you remember the story these many years later. And uh, well, it, it was just a, it's just one of the highlights of my professional speaking career. Wow. No, that is absolutely, that's a a golden story with so many lessons. So 
let's unpack that. I mean, I'm sure you've you've done some thinking and some some uh, marination and cogitation on the meaning of the story. Uh, to me, it's about generosity. It really is about the spirit of NSA, about giving with no expectation and no. Um, no obligation of compensation. That's a lot of shuns in there, but but truly, right? Giving with no no expectation of compensation. Where else does this show up? How else can we start to use the same spirit of generosity with our clients and with our stakeholders and with our circle of influence in our businesses? Well, first of all, I don't want it to sound to our listeners as if I am trying to blow my own horn and that I am the great guy and am willing to give things away and all the rest, because quite frankly, I did not have a plan to do that. It was based on the relationship that had already been established. And so, number one, I have to say the lesson for me is the deeper the relationships, the more it becomes less about compensation. Not that that's not important. I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that, but less about compensation and more about uh, giving and and sharing something that others can benefit from. So that's number one. Number two, it also told me a little bit about me and the joy that I can get from giving when I'm not getting. I love booking programs. I mean, all of us do. We love to hear the client say yes and send us a contract. But there was something special about going down there, knowing that I wasn't going to get paid for it. Even my compensation, or excuse me, even my travel compensation. But on the other hand, I got rewarded in a way that I would have never imagined with a gift that I look at literally every day. I've had unbelievable comments about our beautiful uh, cut glass front door, and I've always been able to tell that story. Let me tell you about Greg. Let me tell you about my client. Let me tell you about their generosity. And so for me, it, it, it has several different beneficial meanings. For someone who might be listening, I don't know what the answer or what the lesson is for them. They'll determine that for themselves. But I would simply say don't be too quick, especially for established relationships. Don't be too quick to make every final decision based on the paycheck or even the size of the paycheck. That sometimes the reality can be that we need to be there and they need us there and there's good things that are waiting as a result of it. Meetings Mojo with Deborah Gardner. CMP. So, Deborah, talk a little bit about why it's important for speakers like us to know about what's going on in the meetings world, what's in it for speakers, trainers, authors, facilitators, bureaus, all of us in the meetings ecosystem. Well, there are several reasons, <laughs> and definitely um, most of it has to do with the fact that if you want to get hired, you definitely need to know the importance of the meetings world. Right now, there is a huge gap in the meetings world and the speaking world that still exists, and that gap can be as, as wide as uh, speakers on what they earn and what they really earn. <laughs> it can be really wide, but it's a matter of bonding with the real client in the meetings world. Yes, we do service uh, client the client's company organizations and their companies and organizations, but do we really get to know the real client, the one that we need to have that inner connection with, which we do, but we need we need it to be a tighter fit than ever before. And it's very obvious that we need one another. We want 
to work with each other, but until we understand each other, um, is, there's still going to be that gap. But if you want to get hired today, it's really about getting to know the meetings world. So let's talk about this. Actually, I want to start with even a question before the question, which is we've got the certified meeting professional, which is the designation that you hold. And we also use, we bandy about terms like the meeting planner, uh, you know, the, 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 the meetings team, et cetera. Are meeting, meeting planners do a whole bunch of other things way beyond speaker selection, speaker communication, speaker contact, sometimes even a meeting planner is not the ultimate decision maker about hiring or not hiring speakers. So talk about that. I think it's a huge misconception that, oh, well, your ultimate end buyer is the meeting planner. So break that down for us. Very true. Um, understanding the meetings world and understanding the meeting planner to the point where it's it's there's so much of a, a challenge in the meetings world about their perception. And it starts with their title. We call them meeting planners. Well, you're absolutely right. There's so much more than just the planning function. They're strategic, they're operational, they have to deal with stakeholders and their, their audience. I mean, the underlying message is we don't really know the true role and really appreciate and respect what they do. But the best approach that the speaking world can help bond with the meeting world is to actually make sure you approach them with the right title. And that right title is meeting professional. And if you also work with event planners, if you've caught on, you call them event professionals. And there is a difference between the two depending on who you target. A meeting professional has a lot of hats that they wear. And they're the ones that book 10 rooms or more. They're the ones that deal with the production of the meeting from breakouts, workshops, to keynotes. The event professional handles a one-day event. It could be a golf outing. It can be a wedding. It could be a fundraiser. So depending on where you target, that is who you should approach. And approaching it with that right terminology will help you get hired. So even beyond getting our language right, which is really important, what's the biggest mistake that you see speakers make when trying to get hired by potential clients or even when working with their clients after they're hired? Well, understanding that they actually do not only have the roles that they have to play um, and deal with, but we also feel that we don't, you know, they don't really have anything else to do. But in reality, they are very stressful. They work in a very stressful job. You know, Edelman Intelligence just released the top 10 most stressful jobs in 2017. For the second year in a row, in the same order, the top five is number one, military personnel, number two, um, firefighters, number three, airline pilots, number four, police officers, and number five, meeting and event professionals. So they are working in a very stressful job. And if we understand and help that and help them relieve their stress in any way, form, or fashion, we're going to get hired. And the top request in 2017 right now that the meetings world would like to see from the speaking world is better communication. Better communication. And how do you do that? Be proactive. Be proactive. And three examples. One, they don't like ping pong email anymore. They can't handle where it's actually going to be uh, categorized. They lose the miscommunication. So utilizing text messages helps. Um, an app called Slack app really helps 
it's a it's an actual um, platform that keeps the, all the information in one place. That would help as well. And thirdly, face to face, why not have a mentor, a mentor on the meeting side, so you can really talk to somebody on that side of the fence um, instead of talking to your your mom, your dad, your peers, or on on the speaking side. So you really can understand what is going on on their side. So that's that would be helpful. So is it true, Deborah, that for, for some meeting professionals, speaker selection is a tiny, thin little slice of what's on their plate? Some of them might not even be involved in speaker selection, and and their, the demand for speakers and the hiring of speakers, that decision actually happens somewhere else. Is that correct? Well, it depends, and actually it can be anywhere today, especially with all the new generations coming into play that are being trained into those positions. Um, I was mentioning to uh, the session today here at uh, Influence how looking at speaker websites, I want to just scream when I see them because in the navigation bar, you have the meeting planner page that probably has the outdated bio and picture. Well, you never know who is going to be looking at your website. and. It could be an influencer, it can be a decision maker. And that person could be um, a CEO, it could be a meeting professional, it could also be your neighbor. So it's really hard to tell today, but with all the new generations coming into play and being trained, you have to be prepared for anyone and everyone that you talk to. Wow, so let's zoom in on that very specific tactical, practical question. I'm a speaker, let's just pretend. I'm a speaker, I've got a website, I should not, that tab that has my value proposition of me in front of a room, that should not be called meeting planners. I should not have a button on my website that says meeting planners. Should that say speaking? Should that be the services page? How do we reframe that? I would actually get rid of the entire page. Because think about it, we have to be as relevant as possible. That's what they want. They, right now, out of the survey from uh, MNC Magazine, 91% want relevance. So if you've got a meeting planning page with an outdated bio, an outdated photo, um, and one sheet, it, they're not going to want that. They're going to want so much more and, and as relevant as possible. So you want to keep your entire website up to date so they can get to that information. But again, it gets back to being proactive. At, let them know you want to send them your one sheet or your, you know, put them on their your e-blast uh, newsletter. Let them know that you want to provide as much as you can up front. And if they don't need it right now, it's going to be okay. They're going to still still say yes, send it because they're going to put a file on the side about you. And when they do want that information, it's right there for them. And if not, then they're going to have to call you. They're going to have to track you down wherever you're traveling across the country. And by then, it's just it's too late. They need that information in front of them as quickly as possible. So providing it by sending it to them instead of having it on your 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 website is going to be better because a majority of speakers will say, "Well, it's on my website. You can just download it here." That's an extra step they don't want to take. So you do the work, you be proactive, and you will get hired. This is Rich Gassaway. This is Lori Guest. This is Ron Culberson, and you're listening to Voices of Experience. And now, your NSA national president and mine, and overall good guy, Brian Walter, CSP, CPAE.
Hi, Brian Walter here, and it's time to once again explore how we can apply the official non-theme presidential concept acronym WSLTC with Litzy. Of course, you know the WS or WIS stands for want something, and the LTC or Litzy stands for leverage the community. So let's get right to it. As speakers, we're almost exclusively small businesses. And by small, I mean, for most of us, our staff meetings could be done in front of a mirror. And for just about the rest of us, our entire staff could fit into an airplane exit row. What this lack of staff scale means is that as speaker business owners, we do most things ourselves. And for the most part, that's fine. But we should consider fine as the F word. There are crucial areas of our speaker business that fine is not good enough. And one of those is our proposals. Every single dollar we earn usually has its origins in a proposal. So kind of important. Yet who analyzes and proofs them? We do. Just us. This is the part where we are all probably thinking, uh-oh. Because intuitively, we know that's not a good business practice. We know that odds are high that our proposals are rife with ineffective or unpersuasive language or even errors. But if we don't have skilled staff or skilled freelance vendors, it's all on us. And when it comes to improving our proposals, we can let ourselves down by emphasizing the soul in sole proprietor. So what do we do? We scale ourselves and our small businesses by whistlitzing the heck out of this. First, want something. And that is better crafted proposals. But even that's not enough. Your wanting has to be more specific. What does better mean? You have to decide. What do you want to emphasize, de-emphasize, or overcome? Do you want to push the prospect to choose a certain option? Or is it all about helping them realize the most logical choice in the world is buying into your contrarian take on your topic? Is your proposal about establishing credibility or convincing them that your high fee value is actually worth it? Once you're clear on what you want with your proposal, then good things can happen. It's now time to, let's see, leverage the community. Have two to three fellow NSA members you trust review your proposal and provide input and actual track changes rewording. I say track changes because you want to see exactly what was rephrased and decide if you agree and want to accept them. But the most important part of this process is using two to three reviewers and not just one. Why? Because one reviewer could be wrong. There's no one right way to do anything. They could have a pet peeve perspective that has nothing to do with you or your prospects, or they could be partially right and partially out to lunch. The value of leveraging the community is in diversity of input. The contrast between one perspective and another and another applied to your written proposal will be shockingly insightful. It is nearly impossible for this process to not provide you with improvement options you would have never thought up on your own sole proprietorish self. When we ask ourselves questions like, what value can I get out of my NSA membership? This is one of those ways. Ask yourself, who has ever given feedback on your written core speaking proposal? If the answer is no one, or just one other colleague or staff member, you're leaving huge potential member value on the table. WSLTC Wislitzi, want something, leverage the community. To wrap up, it's time for VOD, 
Voice of David. That's me sharing my thoughts to help you grow your business, market smarter, and speak more profitably. This month, I want you to consider mindset before skill set. Think about that. Any time that you've mastered a skill, learned a new habit, or gotten some new innovation in your business, at first, you had to crawl before you walk, before you run, before you fly. So no matter where you are in your speaking-driven business, if you think that you're not ready, that you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you don't have that second or third PhD, you haven't published your book yet, all of these negative, self-limiting mindset beliefs, that's called the imposter syndrome. The best thing I can tell you about the imposter syndrome is that all the wrong people have it. It's always the most capable, the smartest, the most conscientious, the most ethical people who think, oh, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm who am I to have this expertise? Who am I to write this book? Who am I to give this speech? Who am I to sell this consulting package? Whereas there are people out there right now less capable than you, less intelligent, less ethical, less competent, and they're making a lot more money because they think they can. I'll share another soundbite with you, which is that a master at work is a master at play. So don't think just because something comes easily to you that it doesn't have marketplace value. As a matter of fact, I would argue that you will always have the greatest impact and make the most money on things that come easily to you but are difficult for others. So just because something is obvious and clear and easy for you doesn't mean that it's obvious, easy, and clear for your clients and audiences. If you can help them with that, that's how to maximize your impact and your income. Something else to think about. All right, that's a wrap for this issue of Voices of Experience. You heard a whole bunch of fantastic ideas, great insights, immediately actionable ideas. And remember, it's not about listening to the ideas. It's not about thinking about the ideas. It's what you do with the ideas that's gonna move the needle on your business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.